You're listening to Comedy Central. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to the Daily Social Distancing Show. I'm Trevor Noah. Today is Thursday, the 29th of October, which means if you live in Oklahoma, early voting starts today. So go vote. Remember, it's the Oklahoma Sooners, not the Oklahoma Laters. Anyway, coming up on tonight's show, why black votes matter. Jordan Klepper talks to Trump supporters and vice presidential candidate Kamala Harris is joining us on the show. So let's do this, people. Welcome to the Daily Social Distancing Show. From Trevor's couch in New York City to your couch somewhere in the world, this is the Daily Social Distancing Show with Trevor Noah. Ears edition. Let's kick it off with the coronavirus. It's the reason people hit the ground whenever you sneeze. With cold weather arriving, many places in the world that had largely gotten the pandemic under control are now seeing alarming new spikes. France has just hit a record 52,000 new daily cases, while Germany saw a record high of 16,000 cases. And now because of that and increasing hospitalizations, both countries are instituting new lockdowns. The last time Europe was this panicked about an existential threat, it had a little mustache. This shit is no joke. But while Europe is trying to limit public gatherings, the corona-in-chief Donald Trump is going around his country holding as many super spreader event rallies as he can. He's even changed the crowd chant from lock her up to lick your hands, now other people's hands, all the hands. But remember, the presidential race isn't the only one that will be decided next week. Republicans are trying desperately to hold on to the Senate, and one seat that they'll need to keep red is in Arizona, where Republican incumbent Martha McSally is in a tough race against Mark Kelly, who's a former astronaut. Which must be really tough, because every political catchphrase sounds way more impressive when you can end it with, in space. You know, the other day I was thinking about this great country of ours, in space, space. Now, Maxelli is one of Trump's biggest supporters. So when Trump came to a rally in Arizona, it should have been a big moment for her. But one thing we know about Trump is he really doesn't like to share his stage. I want to show you Trump today with Martha McSally. And as folks watch this, remember, this is a woman who has signed over, as have many members of the U.S. Senate, her political life to Trump and Trumpism. She is fighting for her political life in return for this. Martha, come up just fast, quick, quick. Fast. Fast, come on, quick. You got one minute. One minute, Martha's sake. They don't want to hear this, Martha. Come on, let's go. Quick, 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 quick. Come on, let's go. All right. I'm coming. Thank you, President Trump. Yo, this is so funny. Trump needs McSally to win so he can keep the Senate, but he's treating her like... Like he's a mall Santa who's late for his smoke break and he's being irritated by a little kid. Yeah, 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 come on, kid, whatever. Get whatever, whatever, yeah, I'll give you a truck. Get out of here, go. I just love how Trump cannot share the spotlight even for a second. Even for a second, he wants it all for himself. He would be terrible to duet with at karaoke. Okay, I'll sing Brandy and Monica's parts and you can sing the rest. But this song is only Brandy and Monica. No one wants to hear from you, Martha. You need to give it up. Had about enough. It's not hard to see. The voice man. And by the way, all this campaigning doesn't come cheap. Did you know that with the congressional and presidential elections combined, 
the 2020 elections are expected to cost $14 billion. Twice the cost of 2016. $14 billion. That's almost the combined age of both candidates. I mean, do you have any idea how much money that is? If you gave me $14 billion, I would be a billionaire. And what's crazy is they spend all this money to get elected. And then when you're like, okay, I voted for you. Can I get free healthcare? Then they'll be like, sorry, (laughs) there's no money. We spent it on ads. Oh, that shit was crazy. But because there's still a week until the election, the candidates are still scavenging for people's votes, like political raccoons. And just like in every other election year, now that we're one week away from the election, black people are back in style. Black voters could tip the scales in this election. And right now, there are signs that turnout among this key voting bloc could rival what we saw in 2008 with Barack Obama at the top of the ticket. Black voters saw about 750,000 early votes at this point in 16, now approaching 2 million. When you look at some of those states that back in 2016 that were decided by a less than 2% margins, black voters in particular could make the difference in 2020. Donald Trump won the Electoral College by 80,000 votes. If, if, If black turnout had been at Barack Obama levels in 2016, we'd be talking about Hillary Clinton's re-election. Okay, can I just say, I think it's a little much to expect black voters to turn out for any candidate like they did for Barack Obama. It's like being shocked that more black people went to a Megan Thee Stallion concert than to see Katy Perry. I mean, usually the only black people at a Katy Perry show are the ones who thought that she was related to Tyler Perry. Is this another Medea character? I didn't know Medea did white girls. But even so, this is a huge turnout. Two million early black votes. That's right, I said early. So I don't wanna hear another joke about black people being late ever again. And wouldn't it be poetic if the black vote swung this election? Because given Trump's history of discriminating against black tenants, black people kicking him out of a house, whew, that would be sweet. And by the way, I know the media is just trying to say that the black vote is important, but the implication is always that it's black voters' fault when shit goes wrong. You know, if just a small percent of black people had voted differently, Trump wouldn't have won. Yeah. But if an even smaller percentage of all white people had voted differently, Trump wouldn't have won either. No one ever talks about that. It's almost like everyone's like, well, white people, of course, they're gonna make bad choices, but black people, you should know better. So, with the black vote as important as ever, both sides are trying to tailor their messages with hopes of resonating with black voters. This year, the number of eligible black voters has hit an all-time high, with both sides scrambling for their support. The Trump campaign releasing a new ad highlighting support from black voters. In 2016, I made you a solemn pledge. I would be your greatest champion. The Biden campaign has launched a barbershop-style series to engage black men. Trump, in an effort to court black voters, is releasing what he's calling his platinum plan. The Biden-Harris campaign has done something we've never seen in presidential politics before, uh, a campaign ad that is just battle rapping. Biden and Harris planning to put 70 billion to the HBCU. What Trump attempted to do, they plan to double that. And as far as the rich and poor with schools, the whole goal is to end the funding gap. That sounds legit. Only if our president now would quit. Wow. I've never seen a rap battle where both people lost. It almost felt like those guys were in a battle against rap. 
It's honestly too bad Tupac is still alive because he just killed himself. And you know, I love seeing how both the white candidates think black people want to be spoken to. Trump is like, I know black people, you guys want the platinum plan, yo, yo. And Biden is like, let me talk to y'all at the barber shop, my man. The ideas that they have about black people are so ridiculous. I was literally laughing about this with my friends at the barber shop. I mean, if these guys are gonna have rap battles, I don't wanna have some random guys, I wanna see Trump and Biden doing it themselves. That's interesting. I want Trump just spitting his truth like, I'm the DJT, the man of the hour, and you know my style, I'm about white power. And then Biden comes in like, I grew up in Delaware, I'm a simple man, but what's up with Trump? Come on, man, come on, this is malarkey. Cause you know, we think this is normal, but you notice we'll never see this kind of pandering in reverse. Like yeah, Obama courted the white vote, but he never came out with a moonshine jug like, all right, everybody, I'm gonna sing you a song about the Southland. So there's been a lot of focus on the black vote this year. And there's one specific demographic within the black vote that's gotten a lot of extra attention. President Trump's poll numbers increasingly rising among black men. The latest polling from Pew shows black men are almost twice as likely to support Trump as black women. Polling shows 18% of black men under 50 support Trump's reelection. And that is an opportunity for the Trump campaign and a potential liability for the Biden campaign, which needs strong black turnout to win in places like Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. That's right. No one is surprised that Trump has got fewer black women than every season of The Bachelor combined. But some people are surprised that he's doing better with black men, which is strange. It's like hearing that the Titanic iceberg has some support among survivors. Now, of course, the obvious question on many people's minds is why? Why are black men more likely to support Trump than black women? Well, to get to the bottom of this phenomenon, we turn to a black man, our very own, Roy Wood Jr. What's going on, Roy? What's going on, Zamunda? So, uh, what do you think is behind Trump's appeal to black men? Well, first off, you need to twist how you spend in this. 90% of black men aren't voting for Trump. So let's just say that off the top. Really, if you want to be funky about it, the people that's really supporting Trump are white men. Like, saying that black men, like... That would be like for all the crazy stuff that's happening in the Trump administration, you just blame it all on Ben Carson. That ain't Ben Carson. I mean, is he there? Technically, yes. But is that really where all the problems are coming from? Oh, you know, actually, Roy, that's a really good point. People don't focus on the 90% of black men. They focus on that group. But the fact remains, some black men are voting for Trump. Yeah, there's always some black people doing shit. The same way is some white people who can dance on beat. It's always gonna be outliers, man. Come on now. Yeah, right, I hear you, I hear you. But I think the interesting thing here is that Trump is doing better with black men than previous Republicans did. I mean, like, why do you think that is? It's, it's kind of complicated, Serengeti. Here, here's the thing, man, is that when you look at black men and why they're voting for Trump, some of them are just straight up Republicans. Then they just don't want to pay taxes, which I get. I get you don't want to pay taxes because you know what's messed up about taxes? Some of your taxes go to pay for batons that you get hit upside the head with. That's messed up. I wouldn't want to pay taxes either. Then you have black men that are just straight up just anti-immigration. They think immigrants are coming over here to take their jobs. So a vote for Trump is a vote against that, which I get. Okay, fine. But if you're asking me, 
the reason why I really think black men like really identify with Trump is because low key Trump is a rapper. He's a rapper, bro. Think about it. Trump talk about all the money he got, but he broke all his friends in jail and he started beef with everybody. That's a damn rapper, man. This dude, you worried about some East Coast, West Coast beef? Nah, dog. Trump, who you know beef with the whole globe? The globe, Trevor. He beef with the whole... Why do you think he started the Space Force? So he could go up there and shoot at the aliens. Okay, okay. I actually, I actually see what He's you're saying, man. But Trump, the person, has done some bad shit to black people, like his family discriminating against black tenants or the way he went after the Central Park Five. Yeah, but Trevor... What white candidate is there that has a healthy history with black men? You got Hillary with the um, with the, the 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 super predator. You got Joe Biden with the crime bill. Then you had the one who was the, the one with the Jerry curl. There was, there was a president that had the Jerry curl. Uh, the, the Millet Fillmore. They all had damaged histories with black people. If you told black people not to vote for a white candidate because they got a weird history with black men, then people would just never vote. That's why you got to vote for the candidate with the most black friends. See, they think we're going to be keeping track of that stuff. We do. We know which white people got black friends. So wait, what you're saying is, just like everyone else, black people vote for candidates who have the best chance to move them forward. And some black men think that Trump is that candidate. Exactly. We're not a monolith. White people ain't the only ones that get to fight with their relatives at Thanksgiving. Hell, we... Excuse me a second. Somebody for the Trump campaign. They keep calling for my vote. Yeah. Yo, what's up with that platinum plan now? All right, have fun, Roy. Roy Wood Jr., everyone. Yeah. All right, when we come back, Jordan Klepper attends his final Trump rally of the 2020 election, and Kamala Harris is joining us on the show. So stick around. (laughs) Welcome back to the Daily Social Distancing Show. This is the final week of Donald Trump's campaign rallies. So we thought, let's send Jordan Klepper out for one more ride on the Trump train in another episode of Fingers the Pulse. After an historic 227-year campaign, I found myself at another Trump rally, one of three he was having in Pennsylvania that very day. And while there was still some of the usual totally realistic expectations... I'm calling 47 states for Trump. At this rally, in the final week of election season, I noticed something different. It was... quiet. Are people just... Tired? You know, I think people I think people are, are exhausted. <laughs> Me too. And I'm ready to move on. I've been to a lot of Trump rallies before, and I, I have to say this is probably the most subdued rally I've been to. It's eerily quiet. You can hear a QAnon push notification ding in someone's pocket. This was a chance to hear Trump make his final case, and frankly, for MAGA country to do the same. It's about the economy. He provided jobs. And when people are working and not out looting and burning cities. Historically, this presidency has lost more jobs than any other. That's not true. It's not true. He has not. He has not. I'd be like, Tony, I need my sheet. I'm going to give you facts. Come on. Give me facts. The facts. That fact sheet. What's on the fact sheet? I'm going to show you. The fact sheet is that in my car. We have not had a fact sheet before. This is good. Oh, really? Bring it. Bring it. I'm bringing it. I hope it doesn't have a list of all the dead, because that thing's going to be huge. Okay, jobs added, 4 million. Under Biden and Obama, negative 2.8 What is the website you're on? I don't know. You don't know? Well, I'll have to Google it. 
Okay, so her friend didn't have the facts, but she did have the Zinfandel. Let's talk about African-American candies and all the things we've done for that. Great. What has he done? With the, uh, with the jail thing. You know, where he was corrected the, uh... You gotta help me out here. Tony, come here. While I waited for Tony to get her shit together, I wanted to wrap my head around their Hail Mary October surprise. And that's Hunter Biden and his, well, I'll just let them explain it. You can see on, you know, Fox and, and One American News about the uh, the laptop, the Hunter Biden's laptop, and then uh, all the corruption taking money from the different countries, you know, from Russia and China. Then Joe Biden would do whatever these countries needed. What did he do? Well, he, what, either what he did or did not do. What didn't? What did he do? Well, it's yet to be determined exactly what he did. I saw pedophilia in China, something like that. Do you believe it? I don't know. That's something I have to look into a lot more. We see about like the, the Hunter Biden scandal. What exactly happened with that? I think they, they found a laptop that had, you know, emails in. Um, Who was it? The FBI. They found a laptop right. with like emails and pictures of, you know, Biden talking with like Ukraine and China about business deals and stuff like that. And Which was, Biden? Uh, Hunter Biden. Then did something happen? They want to push it to get it, you know, get the investigation underway before the election. Yeah. But what's the investigation on? About laptop. just the laptop and just seeing what was on it. What was Not on the laptop? I mean, consp conspiracy theorists would say that it's Joe Biden and Hunter Biden communicating with, you know, outside countries on business deals and stuff like that. Are you calling him a conspiracy theorist? <laughs> That's just what he said. <laughs> right. The conspiracy, some people. Only because it hasn't been proven yeah. yet. Make a ton of money and do absolutely nothing except say, hey, you can meet my dad. That's a disgusting trait, right? To just use your father's name to make money off of that? Absolutely. Nepotism needs to be looked into big time. Yes. What do you think about Ivanka? Oh, she's so gracious. I see Ivanka as someone who is following or creating and enhancing people's lives around jobs and training and whatever causes she has, just like Lady Diana had 20 years ago. She had certain causes, AIDS and different things like was that, it, that she was involved with. Was Lady Diana seeking yes. copyrights in China while she had a position of power? I don't know what you're talking about. As the horn rang and the masses filed into the last rally, there was a bittersweet feeling in the air. Folks are heading on in. This is the last chance for them to get unfettered access to the President of the United States. After, after this, it might be through plexiglass, maybe with a telephone. If this somber attitude was a reflection of what could happen on election day, are these folks prepared for a world post-Trump? Trump could totally win. If for some chance he doesn't win, what happens to all of this afterwards? Me, personally? Sure. I will not live under a socialist government. And just look up the three red flags. On the Biden campaign poster, there's the three red lines. Yeah. Look it up on Google. Well, I think it's an E. It's supposed to be an E, but look at the three red flags or three red banners. And they mean? Communism. He stuck communism right there on the flag? You got it. Really? You don't want to be in a place of socialized medicine? Nope. So where would you go? I'm going to look at Costa Rica. Costa Rica, which has universal health care. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm just, I, I'm not going to live under socialist rule. I don't think Biden's going to make the four years and the camelback, forget it. The camelback, who's that? Kamala. Oh, wow. That both mispronounced the name and uh, xenophobic. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> wow, that's a twofer. If they don't take you in Costa Rica, I'm sure Argentina would welcome you and your point of view with open arms.
So the pitches have been made and the escape routes planned. Nothing left to do other than vote your asses off and hope we get the results soon. Until then, I'll be hiding out right here. Good luck, America. Thank you for your service, Jordan. I'll see you out in that cornfield soon, my friend. All right, we have to take a quick break, but don't go away because when we come back, vice presidential candidate Kamala Harris will be joining us on the show. Welcome back to the Daily Social Distancing Show. Earlier today, I spoke with the Democratic nominee for vice president, Senator Kamala Harris. We talked about the pandemic, police reform, and what it would take to unify America. Senator Harris, welcome to the Daily Social Distancing Show. (laughs) I know, I feel very apart and yet close to you, Trevor. (laughs) It, It has been quite a journey that you have been on. I mean, it's what, 20 months ago, you were on the campaign trail in the primaries, vying for the seat as as president. And now here you are just a week away from possibly becoming the vice president of the United States. I mean, there are so many other issues that still need to be dealt with in America, but coronavirus and the dealing of, with this pandemic, it's the issue. And you see it worldwide. France announcing new shutdowns, Germany as well. In the rest of the world, it feels like people deal with the virus. You know, the nation has an idea of what to do. It's top down, everyone does it. The people win, they go outside. If it gets bad, the people shut down a little bit, but they're managing it. In America, it feels like it's either the argument is all locked down or all open. And the Trump campaign is saying, well, we're the the, the campaign of open up the country. And they say the Biden campaign, Biden-Harris want to lock things down. What, What is the actual plan for what you want to do when you get into power? Well, and I appreciate the way you've asked the question. What is actually at play, right? As opposed to the rhetoric. What is actually at play is back in January, Donald Trump knew the seriousness of this, knew that it was contagious, airborne, deadly, five times more deadly than the flu. And he sat on that information. He covered it up and he didn't share it with the people. Trevor, can you imagine if, if, if families, if teachers, if small business owners knew on January 28th what the president knew and, and, and had the ability, therefore, to prepare Having a plan based on embracing the fact, being honest with the American people, and then embracing science to to do what we will do, which is a a national strategy for testing for for vaccines when we have one, which will be free. Um, But also dealing with another piece of this, Trevor, which I, I really want to emphasize. In many ways, I believe this pandemic has been an accelerator, meaning it has accelerated what was messed up already. Right. So people who were doing badly before are doing even worse. You look at the racial disparities across the board. Those racial disparities, be it in health, be it the economic racial disparities, wealth disparities across the board. They were bad before. And this pandemic has made them even worse. And so when I think about this issue, I think of it in terms of what the solution has to look like. And it has to be expanding the Affordable Care Act, not suing to get rid of it, which is what Donald Trump is doing. But Joe and I are saying, let's expand it. Joe and I are saying, look, healthcare, the body doesn't just start from the neck down. It's also from the neck up. And that's called mental health care. People are going through so much trauma, even before, and especially now. Let's address it, right? Um, these are the things that we are focused on, including lifting back up the economic condition of people. And so that's on a number of levels. And you look at the frontline workers. By the way, 200,000 of which are dreamers. And all of those people, mostly women and men of color, who are the frontline working to save the lives of perfect strangers without having paid sick leave, without having paid family leave, and without having the appropriate PPEs 
to protect themselves. So part of our plan is to also address that and to get people the resources they need. Well, Joe and I have a plan that's about giving federal grants and support to small businesses to do things like the plexiglass barriers, because that's an expensive overhead for them to have to afford that, right? To support them so they can reopen and rehire. Um, but you have to see the people. And you have to understand their needs and, and speak to their needs as opposed to what this guy in the White House does, which is he looks in the mirror and that's who he speaks to full time. So, so are you saying, if I'm understanding correctly, that the plan is too open to limit shutdowns, but to give people the tools to open? Or is it to go shutdown first approach? What, what, what does it actually mean? It means first and foremost, the problem that we are facing in terms of the economic harm and the shutdowns is because of the public health crisis. And we uh, have to get a handle on that. So we need to have a plan, which this administration has not had, for national testing, increasing the number of drive-through testing sites, for example. That's, you want more specific detail, that's one of the things that we're gonna do. But making sure that there are free testing, rapid testing, making sure that when we have a vaccine that it is distributed and that we also take into account racial disparities, listening to the experts, listening to the scientists, and letting that guide our approach but also understanding that there are gonna have to be phases to this. And we're not gonna go from having these spikes in the virus to just turning on a flip and everything going back to normal. And so the interim plan, yes, includes supporting small businesses with getting them things like support for them to reopen and rehire and do it in a way that is safe for themselves and their customers. And, and, and not to mention schools our teachers and our students. Part of our plan is to invest in infrastructure. And so when we talk about reopening and making it a safe and a, and a healthy place for, for whomever, our children, our, our small businesses, right, right. we have to have a plan and the yeah. details matter. I would love to start at the beginning of the journey and go, it's interesting be, being Kamala Harris because according to Trump, you are crazier than Bernie, the most socialist person in the world. And then according to some people, you are not progressive enough. Who are you to you? Like, if you are introducing Kamala Harris to people, who is Kamala Harris and what are you going to represent when you get into that office? Let me tell you, I am the child of parents who fought for civil rights. I am the, the daughter of a mother who arrived in the United States at the age of 19 and believed that she and her children could do anything and that we should never hear no. And, and so these are some of the things that have fueled my ambition to fight for equality, to fight for justice, to fight for fairness. And when I think about the prospect of being the Vice President of the United States, those will be my values and my goals, informed by the values that are about understanding the need to, to fight for the dignity of all people, fighting for working families, fighting for the vulnerable and the voiceless among us. Um, these, these are the things that propel me. The things that propel me are to fix these problems in a way that we understand the people behind the issues and, and not just engage in grand gestures, but engage in what is actually necessary to address the needs right. of the people. Um, you know, and yeah, the, 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 these people, I mean, I don't pay attention to the name calling, Trevor. There are some of us who have lived a lifetime of being called names and, and it is predictable and it is childish and it will not distract me. Don't go away because when we come back, we'll have more of my conversation with Kamala Harris, including why her name is so easy yet so difficult to pronounce. You don't wanna miss it. Welcome back to the Daily Social Distancing Show. 
Here is part two of my interview with Senator and Democratic vice presidential candidate, Kamala Harris. One of the biggest issues that came to the fore during 2020 was that of racial justice. It's been a difficult one because of how oftentimes it is painted as a binary scenario in America. You know, people go all cops or no cops. And that seems to be the, 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 the argument. You are somebody who has investigated police departments, somebody who has held them accountable. It hasn't been an easy journey in America and the attitudes have definitely shifted. So my question is, how do you think America can move forward in a world where police are held accountable, but not made to feel like they cannot do their job? Right. So part of it is this, um, having worked inside the system, I decided to go in the system to change it from the inside. And one of the things that I can tell you, having spent my career there, is that there's a term, accountability and consequence, consequence and accountability. You hear it used all the time in the criminal justice system. And almost always it is directed at the person who was arrested and never at the system itself and the people who work in the system. And we have to get to a place of agreeing. Everyone must be held accountable and there must be consequences when somebody breaks the law. And that includes a police officer, especially a police officer who has been entrusted by the public with the power and authority that they have. And so the way that I think about it is that we need greater accountability and consequence because frankly there has not been, there's been inadequate accountability and consequence when, there is a, when they break the law, such as killing an unarmed black man, brown man, black woman, brown woman, or anybody. So Joe and I, for example, will ban carotid holes and choke holes. George Floyd will be alive today. We will create a national registry of police officers who break the law. Why? Because often it is the case they're not held accountable in court, but they may get fired. But then they get fired, they move to another jurisdiction and get hired there. We need to, ha we need to be able to track that. Joe and I are saying we need a national standard for use of force. Why? Because when there is an excessive use of force, the system asks this question usually, was the use of force reasonable? Well, you and I know you can reason away just about anything. The more right. fair and just question to ask is, was the use of force necessary? These are the things we will do. But in addition, I believe that we have to reimagine public safety in America. If we want to achieve safety, it is outdated thinking to think the way you're going to do it is just put more cops on the street. The way you're going to do it is you invest in public education. You invest in access to capital for small businesses and for, for families. You invest in high rates of home ownership. These are the things that, that contribute to a healthy and a productive society. With Vice President Biden to President Obama, he was the one who would whip up the votes. He would, he would try and create some consensus in Congress, you know, with... Um, Dick Cheney, he was the real president of war. You know, with Mike Pence, I guess he proofreads the tweets. I don't know. But the point is, as vice president, you have a special position. You have a special relationship with Joe in that you are trying to get to the same place, but sometimes you see the world in different ways. What do you hope your role will be in helping Joe Biden achieve what the Democrats and what the voters have asked of the people they voted for? That's a great question. I mean, here, I'll tell you this. I think that... Um... One of the things I love about Joe, he had the audacity to say he was going to have a woman run on the ticket with him, and then he chose a black woman. That was his choice. And he had the audacity to do that. He understands that he and I have 
very different lived experiences. And he wants and asked for a partner who would do this work with him, who can give feedback and perspective mm -hmm. around not only a different life experience, but, but joined by our shared values, right? And so I think about the work that we will do together from that perspective, where it's going to be about a lot of honest conversations with, with real feedback and perspective, um, but focused, you know, primarily, of course, to get back to where we started, what we need to do to get through the tragedy of, of the pandemic, um, but also to unify our country, knowing that we have had to withstand four years of a president who spent full time trying to sow hate and division and we need to bring the country back together around our shared ideals. You know, regardless of where you live, your gender, your race, your age, the language your grandmother speaks, the vast majority of us have so much more in common than what separates us. And, and Joe and I are very committed to, to doing that, which is to unify our country. My final question to you is your name. Mm-hmm. Why does it seem like it becomes harder to pronounce your name <laughs> the more conservative a person is? Because I, I've noticed that there are some people you've worked with in the Senate yeah. who don't seem to know your name. Is this strange for you or does this like just remind you of growing up? I mean, any immigrant has the story, any child of immigrants has the story. How does this make you feel when you see people fighting about your name? Uh, well, that's an interesting way to ask the question because um, when I see the people who have had the experience of having been given a name from their family, which is one of the greatest gifts that a family can give you, it is the first gift that a child usually when they enter the earth receives from their family. It is usually informed by tradition and love and the hope and aspiration the family has for that child. It is something precious and sacred, and it is a part of their identity. And when I see people fighting for the right for that to be respected and treated in a dignified way, I applaud and salute that. Anybody who otherwise, on the other side of that, wants to play childish games, as though the, 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 the highest elected leaders should conduct themselves like they did when they were children on the playground, well, it speaks poorly of their appreciation for the responsibility and the role that they have. And I think it's a reflection of their, um, their values and, and maturity. Well, on that note, I thank you for your time. Congratulations on the journey that you've been on. And you. hopefully the votes will all be counted. Hopefully there will not be an insane amount of turmoil. And uh, hopefully we'll be talking to you again, maybe from... Uh, the journey to the White House. Thank you so much for your time, Senator Thank Harris. You. It's good to be with you, Trevor. Well, that's our show for tonight. But before we go, we're partnering up with World Central Kitchen for their new Chefs for the Polls program. What they're doing is activating local food trucks, restaurants, and caterers owned and operated primarily by people of color to serve food to anybody who's waiting in voting lines, especially in communities where voting lines are historically longer. Until next week, stay safe out there, wear a mask, and remember... If you're losing a rap battle, there's no shame in playing dead. The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central and the Comedy Central app. Watch full episodes and videos at thedailyshow.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And subscribe to The Daily Show on YouTube for exclusive content and more.
This has been a Comedy Central podcast. 